at a certain point in these Creed movies, you get this sense that you have to leave that Rocky father character behind, that you have to tell a different story. What Michael B. Jordan accomplishes in Creed 3 is that exactly. He's able to move on from the shadow of the Rocky movies and create something in his own image. But that own image looks a lot like 1983 Sylvester Stallone. So it'll be very interesting to see where the future sequels go because it's a very much a take two of that star text, but with a different generation, a different actor-director, and the original creator of the series in the background now decrying his lack of involvement. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, the pulse of theatrical exhibition. Here once again with our co-host and colleague, Rebecca Polly, deputy editor of Box Office Pro, going over the latest news in theatrical exhibition. In our feature segment, we are going to be joined by Russ Fisher, editorial director of the Box Office Studios, going over the entire franchise history of both Rocky and Creed movies will also be joined by Bryn Jonathan Butler, the author, journalist, and celebrated boxing writer to go over the cultural weight of these movies, why they're still so relevant today. I am about to geek out for over an hour on that. So anybody that is not interested in this, after Rebecca and I stop going over the news, you know when to hit pause. Otherwise, you're in for a treat. But first, Rebecca, a quick word from our sponsor before we dive right into last weekend's result and preview what's coming up this week. Rebecca, Jackrow is offering a ticket and point of sale system known as Tapos, which can automatically send your customers targeted emails based on their behavior and spending trends, offers drag and drop custom reporting, and can even save you money on your card processing. To find out more, visit www.jackrow.com. That's J-A-C-R-O. And thank you to our friends at Jackrow for sponsoring this box office segment here because it was actually a pretty good week in the domestic market last weekend, Rebecca. Not if you're a Marvel fan. If you're a Marvel fan, you're going to get a little worried, but the market itself seems okay. Sean did anticipate that Ant-Man was going to drop. I think he said 60% or above. It was Closer to 70. Yeah, it was 70. Yeah, it ended up being closer to 70. But that said, I mean, what we talked about, you know, in last week's episode about the importance of counter-programming, of having uh, diverse titles for diverse audiences and diverse interests. I mean, Cocaine Bear and Jesus Revolution, they both got, uh, I would imagine, quite different audiences, but they both got audiences to come out. (laughs) I want to hang out with the people that saw both those movies last weekend. Those are the type of people I like to have in my life. But if you saw either, thank you for going to the theaters. Both those movies overperformed wildly above those expectations in the $20 million plus range for Cocaine Bear and the $15 million plus range for Jesus Revolution. And right now, the weeks ahead, Rebecca, we've got a great streak of fresh, wide releases coming into the market, starting with Creed 3 this Friday, followed by March 10th, we've got Scream 6. You're going to be there opening weekend with me, right? Oh, yeah. Heck yeah. Ghostface comes to New York? You kidding me? Why not? It's going to be a party. We've also got 65 coming out March 10th. Then on the 17th, Shazam, Fury of the Gods. It's really a nice bit of new films to carry on this momentum after Ant-Man came out. And okay, great $100 million plus opening weekend. But after that, 
it's slowing down. I'm not too concerned because we do have enough activity here in the marketplace. Yeah, I mean, we have going into March, early April, there's John Wick 4. You know, these are films that aren't necessarily the huge, massive tent poles, but they're the films that we need to keep movie theaters afloat in between <laughs> those tent poles. But next weekend, Rebecca, here on the podcast, we've got a really interesting feature segment with our colleague Mariam Albacha on an initiative that trade group called Women in Exhibition, a group that you're involved with is launching its new mentorship program. I know applications are due soon. What can you tell us about this before next week's episode? Yes, that's that's the preview. And please do check in next Thursday, March 8th. We'll be speaking uh, with Miriam Albacha kind of in more detail about it. It is International Women's Day. So we wanted to shine a spotlight on the group, Winter Next Exhibition, and on this mentorship program, which is open to anyone in the exhibition-related community, you know, suppliers, vendors, distributors, exhibitors, anyone is invited to sign up for this to be a mentor or a mentee in this one-on-one year-long mentorship program. We actually just finished up the first year of it because the program officially launched at last year's CinemaCon. And I'll tell you, Daniel, it was so neat hearing from the mentors and mentees who went through that first year about how much value they got from their mentorship and just really it was it was a little emotional to be honest but yeah you know you don't have to be near the beginning of your career you don't have to be brand new to the industries unfortunately applications are closing before next week's episode but we wanted to be sure to kind of get the news out there so people still have time to apply you can check womeninexhibition.com for more information or we will put down in the podcast description links to the applications for both men tours and mentees. And talking about deadlines that are coming up soon, you and I right now are in the thick of it with that big CinemaCon magazine print deadline that we put out every year. It's driving us crazy. Lots of work, lots of late nights here typing away, but we do have award winners at the event that have been announced. Rebecca, who are the honorees that have been announced so far for CinemaCon? Well, no surprise here, really. This year, the NATO Marquee Award is going to Rolando B. Rodriguez, formerly of Marcus Theatres and still of the National Association of Theatre Owners. On the kind of filmmaker side, the NATO Spirit of the Industry Award is going to Christopher Nolan and his producing partner and wife, Emma Thomas, who have really been so vocal in support of theatres and have really kind of helped lead a conversation, especially like during 2020, which was like not an uncontroversial time to be unapologetically pro movie theater. So we've got Nolan and Tom is getting that award, the NATO Spirit of the Industry Award at CinemaCon on the final day. We've got other recognitions here. We've got the Comscore International Box Office Achievement Award going to of course, Avatar The Way of Water. Surprise, No surprise. one saw that coming. Nope. Uh, and uh, we've got some International Filmmakers of the Year awards here. This is Andy Muschietti and uh, Barbara Muschietti, his producer, that are going to be bringing The Flash to screens this summer. Yep, they are getting the International Filmmakers of the Year Award on that Monday, the first day of CinemaCon International Day. On that day, we're also seeing Neil Swinkles, Universal Pictures International, receiving the CinemaCon Pesce Partout Award. And the Global Achievement in Exhibition Award is going to event cinemas of uh, Australia and New Zealand uh, that will be accepted by their CEO, Jane Hastings. So we've got that coming up in Las Vegas, April 24th through 27th for CinemaCon 2023, the biggest convention for the movie theater industry. 
And don't forget, if you're interested in congratulating any of the honorees we just mentioned, our advertising deadline for Box Office Pro's print magazine that will be at the event, it's coming up soon. You can email Patricia Martin at patricia.martin at boxoffice.com to make sure your ad gets prominent placement in that issue. Don't forget to follow up soon because this is really, I think, the best magazine that we put out each oh, year. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely the biggest. It's a meaty issue, but I think this year it'll be full of a lot of good content. And yeah, we both have our travel booked for CinemaCon. I'm, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to go. (laughs) I don't know how whichever screenings take place this year. I don't know how they're going to top the Top Gun Maverick screening last year because that was such an experience, seeing the movie for the first time and then seeing how everyone reacted to it. I mean, that was like, that's a standout moment for sure. Men above the age of forty in tears. I mean, that's the best lead-in that we have for our feature segment here in this week's podcast, going over all of the Rocky movies and the Creed spin-off sequels in anticipation of the release of Creed 3 this weekend. Rebecca, thank you for joining me for this new segment. We will see you again on next week's episode of the Box Office Podcast. But now a quick message from our sponsor, Jack Rowe, before we get to our big feature segment. This week's feature segment is brought to you by full-service box office management provider Jackrow, which has customers singing its praises. Julie and Jeff Eisentrout of Eisentrout Theaters say, Jackrow has expertly responded to the growing digital needs of the industry and developed a product that is both logical and operator-friendly. Their support has always been timely, helpful, and reliable. Perhaps most important are the relationships we've developed. Jackrow's team has always been available when needed and treat us like we're part of the family. For more information, visit www. And we are back here on the Box Office Podcast in our feature segment this week, going over the franchise history of both the Rocky and Creed movies at the box office. Joining us today here on the panel is Russ Fisher, editorial director of the Box Office Studios, a division of our company that provides editorial services for movie theaters and author-journalist Bryn Jonathan Butler, whose latest book, The Grandmaster, Magnus Carlsen and the Match That Made Chess Great Again, is now available in bookstores everywhere from Simon & Schuster. Bryn is also a noted boxing writer. Uh, A couple of books there that you might recognize, The Domino Diaries, one of his earlier books, one of my personal favorites in the more recent boxing writing genre. Bryn, welcome to your first appearance here on the box office podcast talking boxing movies of all things yeah thanks for having me i'm looking forward to it and russ i know we've been talking about recording this for a while because the trajectory of what the rocky movies mean for american cinema ever since the first one is released in 1976 up until now that we have like a reboot quill or whatever we can call these a spin-off franchise with the Creed movies coming out this weekend with Creed 3, the latest installment directed by Michael B. Jordan. It paints a very interesting picture of just how much American cinema has changed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think Rocky came out of the gate as an almost instant landmark for a couple of different reasons that we'll get into cinematically. And to me, it's this interesting real-time parallel history thing where you've got Rocky in 76, Star Wars in 77, almost like branching possible paths for mainstream American cinema. Obviously, we know which one 
wins in the end. But the Rocky movies being about a fighter who won't quit is a useful parallel to the real world example of the movies themselves, where it's this franchise that just won't lay down and in a lot of ways maybe shouldn't lay down and it just keeps fighting even though there's an obvious tide rising against it as far as mainstream cinema goes. So let's start at the beginning. Let's start with the first one in 1976, the original Rocky. But before we talk about the movie itself, let's go into some of the social context around the film. Russ, let's start with you on where American cinema is in 1976. We're at a point now that the Cultural Revolution, that 1967 transitional year into a tourist Hollywood, is already kind of winding down a bit. There are movies that maybe aren't working as well as they did earlier in the decade. Some studios are facing really tough times. We're looking at major studios being bought up by corporations, being part of corporate conglomerates. Hollywood as we knew it in the 50s is completely dead. Hollywood as we thought we'd know it in the late 60s didn't really pan out. It's a very corporate machine in the mid-1970s, but it's a transition. Again, what's that era like right before Rocky comes out? I mean, it's weird. You know, like you say, the promise of the new Hollywood has commercially at least not really fulfilled itself. And we've seen a pivot where some of the filmmakers who might have been a super artistic part of the new Hollywood have gone commercial instead. Steven Spielberg is the most obvious example with Jaws having hit just prior to this. You know, you look at the biggest movies of 1976, setting aside Rocky, and you've got this really bizarre melange of stuff that's like kind of genre. You've got The Omen in there, but then you've got some movies that are frankly kind of forgettable. You know, the Paramount remake of King Kong, you know, The Enforcer, which is a sequel in search of Noah's Ark is in the top 10 movies of 1976. It's just a weird scenario where, which is exactly kind of what you paint where I think there are artistic sensibilities that are still struggling to assert themselves, which ultimately is kind of where Rocky comes in. And there's also a social context in 1976 around the film's release that is at the core of, well, especially the first movie, which is the American Bicentennial Anniversary, but issues of identity, issues of nationalism, issues of masculinity that are introduced in the first Rocky, but that show up through the rest of the films. Issues, however, that have always been part of boxing. Bryn, you know this as well as anybody. Issues of race, class, identity, this bootstraps narrative, which is you know hard to take at face value, but it's romanticized in boxing writing. This is such a big part of the history. And right now in the culture, Mid-1970s, boxing is at a high. We have Muhammad Ali's return, a number of big-name fights. What's the role of boxing in the culture in the United States and Canada? And by the way, this is a bit ironic. It's a Mexican guy asking two Canadians about U.S. identity and U.S. culture. So bear with us here. We have a foreigner's approach as we go through this. Dual citizen at this point. Um, <laughs> Thank you. The same for me. There also. we go. <laughs> I did have to disavow my previous country, so I, I guess I have to step forward. Well, yeah, you have boxing in 1976. I mean, what Shakespeare is to language, Muhammad Ali is to sports. And this is certainly not him at his peak, but he still is Moby Dick in the fishbowl of boxing. And I don't know, I mean, we had Mike Tyson after, but 
Ali lived up to what he was supposed to be, surpassed it, was consistently an underdog that won all of these epic battles. The greatest era that heavyweight boxing has ever had is the 1970s. There's nothing that's been close before or after. And it's interesting in boxing how fickle fans really have been because there's this expectation that every era should be like this. And I think you see a similar thing in Hollywood that, you know, you come through the 1970s, every era is going to be as good as this. Filmmakers are going to be as good as this. The writing is going to be as good. And the audience is going to be as willing to be challenged by material. Obviously, the 1980s are this great reaction to this. And in a way, Stallone is somebody who is very opposed to 1970s cinema. This is his antidote to it. I want to make a film, especially, as you say, during the bicentennial, where people will know who to root for. And this formula, and you see him, I love how this great pastiche of all the stuff he's drawing from, all this Brando from On the Waterfront, instead of Stella, Adrian. And the genius of this being the ultimate championship he wins, of course, is Adrian's heart. And by introducing a love story, it's a lot easier to understand why this was the biggest grossing film of the year is women could be drawn into this in a way that stereotypically they're alienated by a traditional sports film. You have a very idiosyncratic, developed female who is very awkward in her life. And I think it's one of the great love scenes in cinema, for me anyway, to see them on the ice rink where they literally need to hold each other up lest they fall down. Well, that's who they are as people in the world. And Stallone, interestingly, in this film, somebody who has been disregarded their entire life. He has this from birth, a speech impediment. He's awkward. As much as he tries to own his Italian identity, he's only half Italian. He's also French and Ashkenazi Jewish. I think that's an interesting feature about this in terms of how outsiders view the inside. And Stallone has kind of felt like an outsider his whole life. So Stallone hugely inspired by Chuck Wepner, this interesting event that I think was just a side note in boxing, but Stallone saw the jewel of what it represented, of the every man getting his one opportunity to go against one of the most famous people in the world, if not the most famous person in the world, and has this extraordinary moment. And to our listeners, for context, this is a famous fight that wasn't supposed to be a big fight for Muhammad Ali in the 1970s. He's fighting a Caucasian fighter nicknamed the Bayonne Bleeder. This is a barroom brawler type of guy, working class American guy, fighting against the poster child of the counter-revolution at this point, right? The guy that really divided the United States with that big fight in Ali Frazier in 1971. And this working class, quote-unquote, nobody knocks him down. And, you know, knocking him down, knocking Ali down here in this case is probably overstating it. You know, was it a slip? Was it a knockdown? But he falls. He goes down and has this wonderful moment, just one moment. Let's go in before we we dive into the film itself and our reactions to it on how it gets made, because this is part of the fantasy of the Rocky narrative, right? We're talking about, as you mentioned, Bryn, a star before, well before he's a star, Sylvester Stallone, a struggling actor. This is a guy that before Rocky is made, he spent some time sleeping on benches at the Port Authority bus station in New York. He reaches a level of financial struggles in his personal life where he has to sell his dog because he can't feed his own dog. He's basically at the total outskirts of the film industry, is inspired by this fight, 
Decides to write this screenplay. I think the narrative is that he wrote it in three days, probably took him longer, a lot of revisions, but writes this screenplay in three days in the stroke of inspiration. And United Artists comes along, a studio that is famously very open to giving young artists and young new talent opportunities and says, this is a wonderful screenplay. We'll pay you a ton of money for it. Stallone turns it down because Stallone says, listen, it's not the screenplay I'm selling. It's a package deal. You make it. I star in it. There were talks on putting James Caan in it, putting Ryan O'Neill in it. I'm not sure those stars would have worked, Russ. How much does putting an unknown, like Stallone at the time, at the center of this film make the movie work as opposed to putting a more established star like Jimmy Kahn or Ryan O'Neill in Rocky? I mean, I think the parallels to the character make it clear that it's nobody would have said on paper that it's an important thing. We've got to do this. Stallone ultimately advocated for his own position as a star by virtue of the fact of being the writer and due to the fact that they made it crazy cheap. You know, they made this like, I think the crew for this movie was tiny. They like slept in a trailer. You talk about him sleeping in Port Authority and it was kind of the same during production of this movie. And so I think for audiences, ultimately, it is crucial that Stallone is this kind of unknown because it adds, you know, there's nothing realistic about Rocky exactly, but it adds a level of verisimilitude to it because people can come in and they don't have to check their previous assumptions or impressions of an actor at the door. They get to see this kind of blank slate guy for them. And so in the end, it's a big, big deal. And the fact that Stallone's public persona is uh, so close to Rocky's in a lot of ways, for better or worse, is much to the film's benefit at this point in time, maybe less so as we get into the sequels, it becomes more of a hurdle to leap over. But right now, it's very much to the movie's benefit. And it's such an interesting situation when they do decide to go with Stallone as star and screenwriter. They get uh, an experienced filmmaker in John G. Avildsen to come in and make the title. I think this launches Avildsen to a new stratosphere in his career. He ends up making a lot of movies like this in the future. Eight Seconds, which is Rocky, but in rodeo later on. And then The Karate Kid, which is Rocky, but with children in Southern California in karate tournaments which is also a wonderful little movie, but it kind of works. And I think part of why it works in bringing in Avildsen is also a big transition in filmmaking in the 1970s. We were speaking about this before we went on. Russ, you've got throughout your career experience working in a number of sets. You know how much a new piece of technology can come and change the look and feel of a film. That happens in 1976 with the release of Rocky, with the new filmmaking technology, the Steadicam. And this is, I believe, is it the second or third film ever shot with a Steadicam? This is the, I think it's the second shot, but it's the third released. So the Steadicam is basically the invention of a guy named Garrett Brown, who at the time was making movies for Sesame Street and doing some commercials. He did a lot with Super 8 millimeter and 16 millimeter and was really annoyed that he, like if he wanted to have a good, nice camera movement, even with a tiny little like five or seven pound Bolex camera, he still needed to wheel out a 600 pound dolly and have a crew to operate it and like lay track down. And it was this big production just to have a nice little camera movement. So he invented a thing. He was like, there's got to be a better way to do this. He created the Steadicam. 
Now, the interesting thing, there's a really kind of neat tie between the origin of the Steadicam and Rocky because so Garrett Brown is getting ready to go to Los Angeles to try to get financing for the Steadicam. He's got a working prototype. He's shot test footage, but he's like, you know, I need something else to show people instantly how good this could be. And he lived in Philly at the time. And he turns to his girlfriend. He's like, we need to shoot something else. What can we do? And she's like, what about the art museum steps? And he's kind of like, what are you talking about? Let's go. And so they go to the museum and he's like, oh yeah, absolutely. And they go up to the top of the steps and he's got his cam rig and he tells her, he's like, okay, run down the steps. I'm going to follow you. So she runs down the steps he follows her down seamlessly, the camera just floating, keeping the frame steady, as the name suggests, and a thing that would be very difficult to do at the time. She gets to the bottom, she turns around, she runs back up the steps, he follows her. They print this footage, they take it to the first meetings he has in LA. He sells a steady cam in his first meeting, and that footage kind of does the rounds, and it lands on the desk of John Avildsen, who's looking for something in Rocky to that. He's like, he needs something else for Rocky. He doesn't have it. And he sees this and is like, boom, that's it. And so the iconic image from Rocky, one of like the enduring iconic images actually was not even created for Rocky originally. And so that's a really kind of neat thing. But the Steadicam becomes part of the visual identity of Rocky because in addition to the run up the steps, it's all of Rocky's running, training footage. You know, he sat in a van, Garrett Brown sat in a van pointing the Steadicam out of you know, the side of the van as they ran across with Rocky, like the scene where Rocky's picking up speed as he's running by the ship, you know, really beautiful scenes that couldn't really have been achieved any other way. And especially couldn't be achieved by a production that was as small as this one. And so the Steadicam becomes this thing that it's like, you don't necessarily know it when you see it, if you don't know filmmaking technology. But I think that especially at the time, audiences are visually aware enough that they understand that they're seeing something in a different way. And Rocky doesn't look like any other boxing movie because of that Steadicam. It can go in the ring with them. It can show a fight in a way that no other filmmaking technique has allowed it to be shown so far. And that is, you know, fundamentally part of what turns Rocky into like all caps Rocky. And that's exactly, I think, what helps set this movie apart. As you, as you say, Russ, it's not that the audience immediately recognizes what they're looking at. They're being introduced to a new part of film grammar with the, the Steadicam that audiences today may be accustomed to, may take for granted. Back then, it looked like something you had never seen before. Boxing movies did not look this way. Another big aspect of the original Rocky, 1976, is it still looks like a dirty 1970s American movie. It still looks like an auteur new Hollywood film. The visual palette in the original Rocky is very similar to the one that we see in The French Connection, for example, the William Friedkin film. It's not too dissimilar from even something like Taxi Driver in the very dirty New York City in that Martin Scorsese picture. It recalls other movies of that time. Of course, that changes once we get to Rocky Three. but that original movie, that original Rocky, feels like both a movie of its era and a movie that is suggesting the end 
a Fenera. But if you want to see a great film, why we fell in love with this, why the whole crowd was erupting watching this in a way we'd never seen before pre-Star Wars, go back to the first one. And it was so muted and quiet and spare in so many respects that it was an introduction to 70s cinema for me because I hadn't seen all of the other stuff at that point that um, you just became so invested in Stallone's face in a way that I think America has never recovered from that addiction to what he represents about the American character. There's something about him which is really moving. And we don't have that many avatars that represent that that kind of em- empathy and, and connection. So this feeling of regret, redemption, coming from nowhere, trying to get somewhere, the American dream being fulfilled. I mean, Stallone is able to tap into this mode of like the American yearning for something and offer this payoff that, as I say, I don't think it's ever worn off for people where there's this feeling of gratitude, of connecting to something transcendent of, that boxing offers, a kind of deliverance to people that are left out of America in many respects. I mean, most of the story is low-hanging fruit for him, and yet he's been able to create this mosaic that transcends boxing probably more than any other film, both commercially and certainly in the first film, I think, artistically. The idea that we can barely hear him losing at the end of this film because it's so drowned out by him wanting to consummate the emotional connection with the love of his life, that is a pretty brave choice. One thing I want to bring up, you know, is you talk about the parallel, the Rocky and the Rambo thing with Stallone representing masculinity and addressing masculinity in American culture. I don't want to leave out First Blood, the 1982 movie that is the origin of the John Rambo character. I think the representation of masculinity in Rocky is just this guy who wants to like achieve the goal that he sets for himself. And he wants to be bigger than everybody thinks that he can be. And John Rambo in First Blood, he's like, the dude just wants to get a, like, he just wants a burger and to be left alone. You know, that's literally all he wants is just to go home. He doesn't, he's, you know, he's absolutely suffering from PTSD. He's got huge issues coming back from Vietnam. He's really, really struggling with not being accepted as he comes back when, after he's done this thing that was hugely traumatic for him personally, and that was obviously traumatic on a national level. And the way that Stallone sort of not always successfully tries to pivot into the mainstream and into, and sometimes against the mainstream expectations and demands for an evolution of that sort of character is a thing that we see in both the Rocky movies and the Rambo movies. You know, we see him really trying to like maintain this thing that he creates a character that has depth and that has resonance because it reflects something real and ultimately really like struggles with developing that character along those same lines and not just pushing him up into the stratosphere into this like overblown representation of a fantasy ideal rather than something that is realistic or valuable in any way. And it's a wildly interesting thing to me about the trajectory of Stallone's career. And that as he sees, you know, gets back into some measure of power for whatever reason, 
that he ultimately tries to return his characters to some version of that early example. And whether he does so successfully or not is open to debate. I think with, you know, certainly with Creed, he did do it successfully. I think he does kind of reground Rocky in a way that gives the character a sense of closure that most people don't ever get to do and that he almost didn't get to do by his own engineering. I think this thread of masculinity and both the Rocky and the Creed movies being films about ethnic identity and masculinity, the intersections of those are very interesting in the sense that in the original Rocky, one of those moments that makes me fall in love with this movie is that scene that I think everyone can bookmark right before the showdown between Rocky and the Muhammad Ali stand-in Apollo Creed, where he has a quiet moment alone with Adrian, his partner, in bed, and is emotionally vulnerable in a way that we rarely see these type of characters be emotionally vulnerable. And these moments between Rocky and Adrian before the big fight occur time and time again as part of the Rocky formula and do occur in a way as part of the Creed formula between Michael B. Jordan playing Adonis Creed and Tessa Thompson playing his partner. It allows, I think, the viewer to engage emotionally with a film in a safe space, especially if you're the type of guy that, that maybe wouldn't really feel comfortable watching a movie like that or a scene like that. It gives you permission to tap into that emotional sentiment. And I think the original movie works in large part because, as you mentioned at the start, Bryn, the Adrian character is so well-developed. The entire milieu of characters are outsiders. Talia Shire completely is unable to occupy her own life meaningfully for herself. Her brother dismisses her. Her brother's an alcoholic, and this is Burt Young right after Chinatown, wonderful character actor, but he's so dismissive of who she is and dismissive of Rocky that he doesn't even deserve to be enter into the family dynamic or why would you want to date this ugly woman? So they're all kind of have this massive chip on their shoulder in a way that is allowed, you're allowed to see their defense of it but you also see their vulnerability and you can appreciate where they're coming from and see your own aspects of doing the same thing in your own way, uniquely. So it's one of those examples of with specificity, it discovers universality in all of the characters. Burgess Meredith has not had the great champion. He has a gym, but again, sort of like Clint Eastwood years later, a million dollar baby, that great champion hasn't passed through. He hasn't had his Freddie Roach waiting for his Muhammad Ali in Manny Pacquiao to show up. So when Burgess Meredith discovers that Rocky, after not allowing him even to have a locker in his gym, replacing the locker, which is Rocky's whole identity, is that I'm a fighter. One day I might make it. Now you don't even have that shot any longer because it's taken so long. Another person has given up on you. Finally, Rocky gets this opportunity out of the blue. What happens? Burgess Meredith shows up at his door and petitions to become his trainer. And Rocky gets to act out all of his rage. And in that rage, you can feel Stallone's rage. Why has Hollywood, why has the world not seen my value? Why am I so undervalued? So when I see Rocky screaming that rage about why can't you see how awful it is that I live and not care, and after it's all out and you see Burgess Meredith walk out into this lonely street, looks like it's a Edward Hopper painting that he enters into after he leaves the apartment. Rocky then has collected himself, goes out, throws his arm around him and apologizes. 
it still moves me to see it that Stallone is able to, as much as he's annoying in the bluster of masculinity that he tries to encompass, because clearly he has a lot of insecurity about this, insecurity about being small, insecurity about maybe what his parents did and that sort of thing, insecurity about his even talking or his face looks weird or his body, you're going to see it transform in a way that suggests, I only really feel comfortable if I look like a superhero. And just the fact that he would let himself gain 20 pounds and try to actually act almost gets him an Academy Award in Copland because our expectations are so low about him being willing to access his vulnerability at that point. But in Rocky One, he's in a different place. He accesses it. There's yeah. an emotional honesty in the film that he never gets to recapture. And in many ways, it works so well dramatically that it gives the rest of the series permission to go for that, to attempt that. This is a script that was written in three days, if it was written in three days, but that's the mythology. Yeah, we'll accept that. But it feels like it was. And the moment that Stallone has money, he has all of these things working for him. His instincts are so good. I mean, so much better than way more polished writers, you know, like a William Goldman or whoever trying to get at emotion. But Stallone just naturally can do that. And you see that throughout the series, there are still little moments that bring you back to the first film where you go, how does this guy have this power over me? You know, you talked about the emotional power of the ice skating scene. They weren't going to shoot that that way. They were going to shoot it during the day and they couldn't afford extras. And so it was like, okay, let's go in at night. Let's make it this really small, lonely thing. And it's those constraints. Like you say, if you say, okay, you've only got three days to write this, or you don't have any money, or nobody's going to pay any attention to you because you're still a weirdo. And you got to try to make it anyway. When he fights, I agree. Like his instincts are very good. Or related to that, on a macro level, we talk about America in the 70s and what this movie is. And you talk about this movie being entirely populated by outsiders. And I think that to a certain degree is also why it is massively popular. You talk about the universal appeal of these characters in their specificity. You know, America in the mid 70s, I think, is in this crisis where. We're like, okay, we we won the big war, but then we had trouble with a couple of things afterwards. Inflation is happening. Interest rates are rising. Okay, it's the bicentennial. We're supposed to be happy. We've made it 200 years, but why does everything feel like a battle? And I think that sense of like, I can't get the thing that I feel like I'm entitled to is becoming very central to American identity at the time. I think a lot of people are experiencing this thing where it feels like on paper, we're supposed to have all of this stuff and we're supposed to be the greatest country in the world, but why does it feel like we're not? And there's a sense of that that really pervades so much of the drama of the 1970s and into the early 1980s. And I think it's something that Rocky taps into very deeply on a fundamental level. And it's really represented in that sense of everybody in the movie is kind of an outsider. And I think that reflects the fact that it's a mistake to say every American, but I think a lot of Americans at the time felt like outsiders, like they weren't part of the thing that everybody else seemed to be a part of and that they were never going to have that. And then Rocky kind of gives it to us on a plate in a very you know, effective and kind of emotionally tidy package. It lets you know who to root for. That's something that we said earlier here on the podcast. It's something that is probably best exemplified a year later with the release of Star Wars that literally paints it in black and white on who you're supposed to root for. Everything after this 
on a tentpole blockbuster level from a major studio becomes a little bit clearer. Those nuances, that malleability that we used to have in the 1970s where is Michael Corleone a, a guy you're rooting for? I don't know. I kind of. I'm not sure. I don't know how I feel about this. You watch Straw Dogs, the Sam Peckinpah movie. I don't know who to like here at all. That starts dissipating little by little by little once we get into the 1980s, down to the point where it becomes absurd and a little bit simplistic. But the first step towards that process actually comes two years later in 1978 with Rocky II, a sequel that is a lot more like the original Rocky than the rest of the films. The rest of the films are closer to being action films. Rocky II is still a drama. It's a film I really like, but a film that is affected by fully buying into the fantasy that is deprived of you at the ending of the first one. The ending of the first Rocky makes it clear that the only victory you can get as an outsider is a moral one. And that's okay. The second one buys into the fantasy. It gives it to you full sale. And that's what I think hurts it. It's still a film I really, really like. It's one of my favorite movies, period. But we have to say that it's not something that works all the way. And after this one, the formula changes. That conflicting feeling that you're talking about in the 1970s about who do you root for, but Rocky is the champ. And yet he's not the champ after the first one. That was really wonderful to engage with as like a five-year-old about he's a winner because he's found love and yet he's... Creed is still the champ. What, what, what's, what's the resolution here? I wonder, like, if they had left it, how we would feel about Rocky, if there'd never been 9,000 sequels. And it's interesting when you go back to two, it's like Stallone, Stallone was in a, a wet dream that didn't go through. He needs closure. And so we're going to get closure. We need the head of Creed. We, we saw Creed in the first movie you know, acknowledging it. And it's his great moment of vulnerability is as Stallone is getting up, you guys were mentioning Stallone is getting up, everybody's saying, stay down. You can see Creed shaking his head in a way. He's just seeing something. He's so overwhelmed by the majesty of Stallone's spirit that he's broken in, in a way. Like, like you could see him just, uh, this is, this is wrong. Like this is a better man than me, despite that I'm the greatest champion that's ever lived. So in two, we need to hack him down and it was a very strange experience because it was that feeling of Stallone might be this tremendous artist. He might be the next Brando after the first one. And now it's like, no, he's not Brando at all. He's Sylvester Stallone. He's just as big an entity, but it's way weirder and more embarrassing. I began to hate the relationship with Adrian in the second film. It felt very contrived. The subtlety of the first film, as we mentioned, the skating rink or the pet food store or you know these, these little things that come out of Stallone's life all work. All are home runs in subtlety. Subtlety is gone now. Now it's put her in the hospital. <laughs> like It just becomes almost like kabuki theater in sort of the grandeur of things in this. Like Creed, even though he was playing up the bicentennial, you knew he was in on the staging, like Ali. He's in on the joke of it. And suddenly nobody's in on the joke of it and irony doesn't exist any longer. And that's a weird feeling in this film is the first film didn't need any irony, but in this film, suddenly you're like, there's an inevitability that just destroys the tension that was present in the first film 
for some reason. I didn't know where the love would go in the first film. I didn't know where his career would go. I didn't know where Mickey would go. Here, there is a sense of destiny that isn't as uplifting, even though it still has moments. I mean, you have Bill Conti's music, which is spectacularly iconic, and you can't help but be lifted up. The second film was very successful, but you did have a feeling, why was this necessary? There was such a victory at the end of the first one. There's no way that this couldn't be anticlimactic and erode at the legacy of what made the first film such a work of art that as a rarity was also an unbelievable commercial success. It's interesting in the way that I think the first two movies are kind of conflated in people's minds where I think a lot of the stuff that happens in two is what you assume happens in one because it's become so stereotypical. It's such a cliche that it's like, well, okay, of course the sports movie ends this way. Of course it ends with the guy becoming the champion. It's a like an awkward teenagedom for this series, you know, where it's becoming that blockbuster thing that is a stereotypical blockbuster in the way we would think of it now. And it's kind of bizarre to watch something that was such a scrappy artistic movie evolve into that thing. And this is the way that sequels were done in the 1970s. When even Jaws 2 works this way, right? Where you were like, well, let's just get the same ingredients and try to push the characters a little bit differently. And it doesn't always work. Sequels in the 70s, kind of exist in this weird, we don't know how to recycle the formula sort of way. That's definitely a big element of Rocky II. But I will push back against you guys because I love these movies and I love Rocky II. The real story about Rocky II is the connection for me to this outsider that realizes that his whole life was a million to one shot, right? The tagline from the original. What happens to your life after you have that shot and you still lose? He decides to retire. He decides to buy whatever working class home he can buy in, in South Philadelphia. And he decides to stop getting beat up because he's going to go blind. The doctor tells him, you're going to go blind if you keep on fighting. So he decides to become an actor. Not an accident in that screenplay. And he is terrible at being an actor. And he is just made fun of left and right by everyone. No one takes him seriously. And he's thrown away. It's a movie about someone who lost that one shot and ran out of those 15 minutes of fame. And Bryn, this is something that happens in boxing all the time. You can't do anything else. You're pushed aside from society. You're from the margins of society to begin with. And the one thing you can do is hit people for money. And you're going to go back and do that because that's the only way you can make a living. And maybe that's the only way you can feel comfortable going to sleep at night. There are some demons when we look at professional boxers that come from this background that brings them back to the ring again and again and again. And that's part of the drama that I think works in the Rocky sequel. Now, the ending, when it just buys into the whole fantasy, I think that doesn't really work. I think it might have worked if Rocky dies at the end. I'll go there. I'll go fully operatic. If you kill off Rocky at the end of Rocky II, you went back for seconds, and guess what? The doctors were right. You shouldn't have done that. I think that would have made a better sequel, but of course, it wouldn't have given us everything that follows. There's something about this film that has inspired many people. This has been a recruitment poster for a lot of people to think, this is a way out of my circumstance. I believe in his story. Through his story, I'm able to really grapple with things that maybe I can't in my own story, in reality. And Stallone was able to create that. 
And he was creating it for himself. He was literally writing his own ticket with this thing, with this script. And so I think that blurring those lines is a really interesting feature of Stallone as an actor, as the creator of this, directing this, where he's trying to steer it is really interesting. I mean, taking us to the third one is Stallone is going to walk you through the rags to riches about what is it to be rich? What is it to be this super fantastically famous person? And as he's showing you the iconography of Rocky, you don't know whether it's just Stallone who's on Sesame Street or is it Rocky like playing up that it's Rocky on Sesame Street because Stallone was that famous. Stallone had become Coca-Cola in the United States. He was that much of a brand representing America to the rest of the world. He was who America wanted to be in terms of aspiration in many ways. He is transforming in a way where it's like, what wasn't he like 30 in the first one? My dad didn't go from... 20 to 30 to suddenly being like better built than most guys winning world championships in boxing. Stallone is turning himself into this work of art in a way. And I mean, he also said, I believe that he was modeling a lot of the poses of Rocky's agony being beat up by Creed is taken from Michelangelo. He's going to the great museums of the world, studying the gestures of these people, Bernini, and to see the ecstasy of victory and the hand raise and the posters are so iconic. Like it, it becomes this kind of Renaissance symbolism that nobody's like, this is so embarrassing. They're like, this is amazing. This is incredible. Like, wow, there's such a degree of aspiration that becomes universal for people and uplifting. Just like the music, Stallone was almost able to go toe-to-toe with the music, with what, with the character he's created and the arc he's created. That is no small achievement. And I think the pivot from two to three, if we can move to that chapter, is so interesting because when you think about Vince McMahon with the WWE consolidating all of that world of wrestling. When wrestling is like, what the hell is this? It's silly. It's embarrassing. Again, we're talking about masculinity or masculinity in crisis. Is this kind of homoerotic latently? Like, what are they doing? It's a soap opera and spandex to suddenly like, no, it's phenomenally entertaining. It should transcend boxing because it's more entertaining than boxing. Who gets that? Vince McMahon gets that, and Sylvester Stallone gets that, and says, let's blur the lines even more. Think about just conceptually the genius of that, that we went from Olympic wrestling, which goes back thousands of years, to a guy saying, who cares about the real thing? Let's script it and make it more fun and engaging, and just see what the audience responds to, good or bad, to our characters. Whatever picadillos they have, let's throw people out there and see what sticks And Hulk Hogan is ultimately the one that rises up, ultimate American symbol, the Make-A-Wish Foundation. He is the top person that dying kids want to see over real people who've done things. Somebody who is a fake achiever, a multiple world champion. What does that mean? It's scripted. And yet it doesn't make any difference. Dying kids receive more of what they're looking for from this fake guy rather than the next two, Michael Jackson. I'm not going to go there with what that exchange would have been like. Or I think it was Mickey Mouse was the third one they wanted to go for. So Rocky brings in Hulk Hogan, which solidifies Hogan. For Rocky Three, and we'll go into how that works narratively because it doesn't. But what you bring up here, Bryn, is once we get to Rocky Three in 1982, it's a completely different film. 
it's the 1980s. It's a completely different star text with Stallone, but it's exactly when these movies stop being Hollywood dramas that are trying to be part of this 1970s new Hollywood movement and start being professional wrestling. Let's just have built dudes fight each other and it's going to be hyper real. And the hyper reality, the lie ends up being a lot more appealing, a lot easier to sell and a lot easier to work off the dramatic elements in these films than anything with the emotional grounding and honesty of the first two movies. And just to close out, and let's bring in this incredible guy, Mr. T, who's a bouncer that Stallone had bumped into and attached to him every racist trope that we can find. Basically throw the kitchen sink of racial tropes at this guy, which again comes straight out of wrestling. And basically he becomes such a wonderful character. I ate Mr. T cereal when I was a kid. Because I was like, I, I wouldn't mind looking like that guy. I don't know that I want all the chains and, and that sort of thing, but he's pretty built and he's a kind of lovable character for kids, despite the fact that he's so terrifying the way he's presented at the beginning of the film. So Stallone just has this kind of, again, like Andy Warhol, this magical ability to throw people at you in this fantasy and they become as famous in real life as he's presenting in this make-believe world that you're entering into. And so three, I mean, three, I still think is probably my favorite in terms of being the most rewatchable. I don't think it's the best. The first one by far is the best, but the third one is so much fun. It's such a romp to go through it that you're kind of wondering like, where was Stallone at in his life to conceive of this as a pivot from the second one? Because you're right. It's a totally different film but he is catching a wave that he sees a lot earlier than other people. What I do want to say is, as we move into Rocky Three, look, there are six Stallone-led Rocky movies. And what's amazing about these is that there are six Rocky movies, and they're all written by one dude. And they're directed by Two guys, four of them are directed by Stallone. The only, you know, you get Avildsen doing the first one and then coming back for five. And we'll talk as little about five as we have to, but it is amazing in especially the studio culture that is already evolving in the early 1980s. It is amazing that Stallone maintains a creative hold on this character, that he doesn't give it to anybody. And that's where, you know, we see why he's angry about it now because he's like, this was like of all of the big mainstream, you know, movie characters, studio led characters, there is not a single one that is more like intrinsically tied to a single person than Rocky and Sylvester Stallone. And it's amazing that he navigated as much as he did. And I think three is where we see kind of how that really was able to happen because, okay, Stallone gets to write and direct three again, and then three does really well. And three offers us a lot of what two didn't. And it shows him pivoting to reflecting a new up and coming aspect of mainstream sports culture and American entertainment culture, as Bryn was saying. And it's just like, it shows again, those instincts firing and it shows you that Stallone can really make great choices when he steps away from like, crawling up inside the persona like if he can get out of his own butt a little bit then stallone can really tap into something great if this was rocky 2 part 2 there wouldn't have been any more movies this 
franchise needed to evolve the way, or devolve, depending how you feel about it, it needed to go where it went. And I think Stallone nails the culture, just as Bren was saying, from the social milieu, but he also understands the audience and what they're expecting with the evolution of what we're seeing in television. 1982 is a period where this type of use of montage that we have in Rocky Three, which is a film that's like mostly montage. In Rocky One, you have a third act montage, which is the training sequence. And to an extent, I think we can call the, the final fight a montage. Rocky Two, you use the montage sparingly, quite effectively in the third act as well. There's a montage like every seven minutes in Rocky Three. To the point where it's it's almost like a parody of why you would ever do this in a filmmaking scenario, right? Well, I mean, we're two years into MTV. You know, MTV has been launched for two years. It's already remapped the music industry and changed, you know, is beginning to change what television is and how television looks. And that's yet another thing that I think Stallone successfully taps into with this movie. I mean, this movie is a music video. For the most iconic pop song that comes out of this, we mentioned Bill Conti's score, but just as important and iconic is Survivor's Eye of the Tiger. This is a 90-minute, Rocky Three is a 90-minute music video to a fantastic song about the movie. All of the film's themes are in the Survivor lyrics for Eye of the Tiger. It just works perfectly, where Stallone understands where audiences are. He understood it in 75. He understood it a little bit less in 78. There was a weird transition movie, but in 82, he nails it. It's a music video. It's a music video with like a 13-minute wrestling match for charity in the middle of it, where Hulk Hogan shows up, does nothing for the characters, stops the film in its tracks. It doesn't work at all, but it's still there and people want to see it. Why? Because wrestling is popular in 1982. Why does the Survivor song keep on coming up? Because it's a hit. It's awesome. We've gone from like there being no irony and no subtlety to almost like anti-subtlety <laughs> in embracing it. Stone is always taking stuff. And you're going to see that more and more as we get to, you know, Rocky Five is just Mike Tyson's story with a white guy in his place. Yeah. Right? I mean, and you mentioned Mike Tyson, which this movie kind of taps into what we end up seeing three years later when Mike Tyson explodes into the global consciousness in the mid-1980s in a way that boxing, I still don't think, has completely gotten over the Tyson mystique. Part of that is in the Clubber Lang character played by Mr. T. Of course, this is before anybody knew who Mike Tyson was. I would actually say there is a whole lot more Roberto Duran, Manos de Piedra, Hands of Stone, than there is Mike Tyson in how Clubber Lang's character is depicted. There's a little bit of George Foreman there, like the pre- you know, the pre-Ali going down in the eighth round, George Foreman. This is the sort of George Foreman that turned Joe Frazier into a bag of dust in that iconic fight. That's where that Clubber Lang archetype was, but it presupposes this fascination when we do get the real thing in society. It's maybe more fair to ask how much Clubber Lang is in Mike Tyson. Tyson was also marketed to boxing very successfully in an incredibly innovative way that I think taps into what Stallone was doing is there were highlight reels, essentially montages like the opening of, of Rocky three of all of Tyson's knockouts were being sent to HBO by his managers, Jim Jacobs and Bill Caton saying, don't miss this guy. If your grandfather missed Joe Lewis 
and your dad missed Muhammad Ali, do not miss Mike Tyson. So they were already setting him up into this lineage of the next special guy. And so, yes, he was Clubber Lang in the sense of he came from Brownsville, the scariest dungeon in America. And, baddest and man in America. Yeah. Baddest man. Yeah. Baddest man on the planet. And he had a rap sheet of 60 criminal offenses before he was 12 years old. But then he encountered white people. And they saved him and essentially they civilized him and now it's okay to love him. And that worked. Corporate America bought him up. We forget this because of who Tyson was going to prison for rape. But before that happened, I mean, only 20 years old, he should have been the first athlete to be a billionaire and not just through his boxing earnings where he's making $21 million for 91 seconds to beat Michael Spinks at a time where Michael Jordan for a whole year was making $2 million. That's how much, how valuable Tyson was. But he's in Nintendo. He's selling Toyota, Kodak Film, Diet Pepsi. He is marketable to the most conservative white brands. It's Rocky Three in real life, but- That's right. With a very different context, right? This real life version cannot be the Italian-American immigrant. Not in real life, not in the United States in the 1980s. There was a sense with Tyson that everybody in boxing, even all the old timers, when they were, were watching what he was doing, were thinking, who could do this? He never gets hit. He's knocking out everybody. He's so sophisticated in what he's doing in terms of channeling his aggression. Are we looking at the greatest fighter ever? And he was 20, 21 years old. That's who Tyson was. And kind of like Michael Jackson with the Thriller album, it was like, this guy's only 23 are we going to look at somebody who's going to surpass the Beatles? Because is he just going to keep getting better and better and better? I mean, the Beatles walked off, dropped the mic at 30. If these two guys, like we're in an age where we have them, we have Eddie Murphy, maybe the greatest comedian ever. There was this feeling of like, wow, we're in such a golden age with this incredible talent. But so many of them, it wasn't the beginning of something. It was the end of it. We just didn't recognize it. And Tyson was a bit of that, and I think he still is a bit of that, that he simultaneously represents the youngest heavyweight champion ever and the biggest upset loss ever. He is both. And that's a weird thing to handle. And you know what? That's what the Rocky franchise is about. It's that's right. the, the biggest that's champion true. ever, and you still lost the big moment, the big championship match, of course, in the original. It's that duality that sort of makes it work. And I think the Tyson mythos builds on the Rocky movies and they sort of interact in a way that brings boxing back to the popular culture. This is going to lead us in right into Rocky four, which turns into maybe the most absurd sports movie ever made. And the Tyson phenomenon, like we were saying, doesn't exactly inform Rocky four, but I do think it informs the reception of Rocky four. This is a movie that exists on home video that exists in these like global context of boxing during the Tyson era. We don't get another Rocky movie between Rocky four and Rocky five during the Mike Tyson prime. So going on to this wonderfully absurd film that I just have such a soft spot for arguably the most rewatchable Rocky sequel along with Rocky three. I think a lot of people saw a movie like Rocky four on cable. I think, you know, the fact that it and Rocky three are very rewatchable movies they're superficial to a certain degree they certainly offer superficial visual pleasures 
And so them going hand in hand with this sort of widespread adoption of cable really adds to the longevity of the series and maybe makes it viable in that, okay, Stallone doesn't have an idea for another five years, or he is focused on other things for the next five years and, you know, doesn't pull a movie together, but maybe it doesn't matter because these movies are having second and third lives on VHS and cable. That was something that wasn't really in the equation back when, you know, Rocky was released. Now, Bryn, this is a movie that uh, was shot not too far from where you were living with Vancouver standing in for Soviet Russia. How was this received? It was, I think, my first sense of the sort of psychological complex of projection. This Russian who looks this way and is married to Stallone's wife behind the scenes this six foot tall Danish woman, and he's a Swedish guy as a stand-in for the Russian Frankenstein creature of communism. He takes steroids, he's inhuman, he's miserable. Russia lives in a perpetual winter, almost like a foreign planet. Yeah, he lives in a planet fitness run by Borgs, you know, that control him. And then Stallone, by contrast, I mean, my grandfather was a logger, cuts wood. And would never take steroids, would never cheat the way this lab is creating this figure of Ivan Drago. Stallone is good. The poster, he's literally draped in the American flag. He wins over all of the Russian public. He wins over the stand-in for the Russian president, who even has the little continent on his skull, the birthmark thing, as did the Russian prime minister at that time. So I just found it crazy fun. (laughs) There was this sense of learning about how America wants to see itself through Stallone that was really interesting. And I'm not saying this because I have this dark underside view of America, but it was like to see America distilled to Sylvester Stallone. Again, I hate to use the metaphor, but like this wet dream version that everything is aspirational. The whole world should be this crystallized in Stallone, this totally pure just assembly of all of the best virtues of what the country represents an immigrant making it an american dream etc cetera, etc cetera. and then standing up to the soviet union and standing up to them to such a degree that he wins them over morally while while physically dominating and destroying the impossible non-human cyborg like frankenstein figure it was hysterically funny, even not getting the irony at the time. And then in reviewings, there was just this sense of, why is this country so insecure? Why is it so desperate to reassure itself of its place in the world? There's a feeling with Rocky where it's like, he's not aware of what he's running from. It's just what he's chasing. And for all of his charisma, he pulls you into it where you're like, yeah, I'm in for this. Knock out that Russian! Knock out communism! We we all chant Rocky, Rocky by the end of Rocky IV. It's impossible not to. You don't have to buy into the jingoism to love this movie and to fall for this movie. And Rocky IV is a movie that works no matter where in the world you are. We can all see the BS in front of us. We can all see that American insecurity just being so painfully displayed on the screen. But you buy into it. And you buy into it because it's a perfectly executed film, technically, with another killer soundtrack. Everything that I got right in Rocky Three 
It keeps on getting right in Rocky IV while making the implicit moral victory of the first one an explicit victory at all levels, national, ideological, I mean, actual physical, in Rocky IV. It is the biggest diversion of what we all love in Rocky One, in a way that I still come out of that movie loving every second of it. You're in on the joke with them. There's a degree where this movie goes so big that it feels like Stallone must understand. Like he's got to be in on the joke in a way because you can't possibly believe in this movie in the way that on the surface it expects you to because it's just so much of a cartoonish fantasy that it's like okay we have to have some level of ironic distance from it because there's just no way this is legit in any way and it doesn't matter it doesn't compromise the fact that it's entertaining as hell this is Stallone in his statesman era this is Stallone after buying the reception of the Rambo movies he buys into it He sort of sees what worked in those Rambo films and tries to put some of that into the Rocky franchise. The film works not because of those Rambo elements. The film works because you still have those moments of emotional vulnerability that he puts his protagonist in. His best friend dies. He could have stopped it. His wife doesn't believe he can win. There's a power in that scene when Adrian tells Rocky, you can't win. To have your life partner tell you, I've believed in you this entire time, but I don't believe in you now. That's a very strong, dramatic scene that works in Rocky IV. There are all of these beats that Stallone puts in that really get to grow because of the seeds he plants in the original that are juxtaposed with a talking robot that his brother-in-law is probably hooking up with. I mean, this movie is insane in every single level, but it's still effective in a familiar way. I have just such a great, fond appreciation of Rocky IV, of so many moments in this movie. The other thing about Rocky IV that I think is important, or more specifically about 1985 that's important, is the year that Commando was released. It's a year after Terminator, and in real life, he's starting to face off against Arnold Schwarzenegger. And, you know, to the degree that ultimately the Stallone-Schwarzenegger head-to-head kind of defines the notion of what action movies were in the 1980s and ultimately into the 1990s. Whether or not that's exactly true, that is the perception. And the thing is that there was a very real rivalry between them. There was a real, like, contention between these two guys. And I think that it does ultimately affects Stallone in the sense that I think he makes choices that he would not have made if he were not trying to outdo or compete with Schwarzenegger. You know, there's a degree up through the first three Rocky movies where there's really nobody else who's doing this and Stallone just gets to be Stallone. But as we get into Rocky four, as we go into the nineties, suddenly things change and The competition is something that he doesn't deal with very well. And there's a sense in the first three Rocky movies that these are movies where Stallone is working through personal things about where his career is at the point. The first one, I'm an outsider. This is my first shot. I need to claim it for myself. The second one, do I have a future after the first one? Am I just Rocky? Is my career going to be bad commercials? The third one, I hit the zenith of stardom I'm aging. There are younger stars coming. There's an insecurity there. The fourth one is just, how can I keep up with Schwarzenegger? And you're absolutely right (laughs) about that, Russ. There's a sense in the fourth one that it stops being 
about an artist working through personal issues about his own star persona. The fourth one is about ending the Cold War. There's a lot of that Stallone statesman, and there's a lot of that Schwarzenegger insecurity in that. And Rocky Four ends up being the most financially successful film of the franchise, actually to date. We've been talking about this being the apex of the Stallone era as action star, right as he gets into this competition with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Stallone's attention is directed elsewhere in other types of movies, being a different type of action star, until 1990, when we get the release of Rocky V, which in many ways, guys, is a return to roots for the franchise. This is a movie where Stallone decides to take the character back to Philadelphia, decides to put the character back to where it used to be. I mean, this is a Rocky that seems a lot more like the person in Rocky 1 and Rocky 2. That superhero from Rocky 3 and 4 seems to be gone. And he especially goes back to that roots by bringing in the original director of the first Rocky, John G. Avildsen, coming back for this entry. Unfortunately, guys, not everything works on paper. Rocky V probably being the hands-down worst movie in the entire series. We'll go into why very, very briefly. The less we talk about this, the better. But a big talking point here, Bryn, is the incorporation for the first time in the role of Rocky's antagonist in one of these movies, of a real-life boxer. Stallone had been working with actors and training them in boxing, training the choreography with them in the series throughout this point. At this juncture, however, he realizes, maybe I should stop getting like Grace Jones's bodyguard, which was Dolph Lundgren, to be the antagonist. Maybe I should stop asking a bouncer that I met at a bar, <laughs> Mr. T, who played Clover Lang, to do this, or a former college football player like Carl Weathers. He goes to an up-and-coming heavyweight boxer. Bryn, what does this casting bring to the movie? What's the background of someone like Tommy Morrison playing the antagonist here? Well, again, it's blurring the lines of somebody who who was sort of recreating Tyson's ascension. He actually had Tyson's promoter, Bill Caton, originally promoted him. And he had a kind of similar trajectory initially with this incredible highlight reel as he was on his way up. So if you're watching this film and you weren't a boxing fan and you were curious, boy, he looks great knocking all these guys out. There was a counterfactual that was very similar. And Morrison was doing exactly the same thing in real life and he was this new version of the Great White Hope. And you had people like Don King that were really leading with race in order to sell fights. And so Tommy Morrison was sort of another version of that, another kick at the can of what if we had a white version of Mike Tyson? So Morrison at that time, like his character in the Rocky film, was an undefeated fighter who was on his way to a championship, despite being from very, very rough beginnings and tough man competitions. Like he, he didn't have an Olympic pedigree or a great amateur pedigree. He was just a tremendous specimen as a knockout puncher. He was juiced to the gills throughout his career. And almost right after this film, there was a sense that he could fight for a championship. And then his career got derailed. He quite famously and tragically gets AIDS and denies that he has AIDS and then makes some claims that he's capable of teleportation, 
which seem a little unsubstantiated at this point. But just to put it lightly, kind of um, a very charismatic person and a charismatic fighter with a charismatic style in the ring but rather eccentric in other ways outside the ring. Yeah, it, it was a choice that was very interesting because we're at this point where boxing is trying to be a version of the Rocky movies to sell itself better. And we talked about already how the Tyson era uses a lot of the tropes from the Rocky movies to better sell itself in the 1980s. And it's lightning in a bottle that Stallone is able to get this young guy who in his real life boxing career claims he's a distant relative of John Wayne. His like ring nickname is the Duke, a totally unsubstantiated story. Like patently patently untrue, but it's part of this whole Italian stallion mystique that the original Rocky had, right? It's the great white hope with a catchy nickname, working class guy, And it seems that life is imitating art here in a very interesting way. So there's a lot of elements to this movie that are very interesting on paper. Rocky V sounds fascinating if it's a movie that never gets made, right? Russ, the reality is very, very different. I mean, I think the the grand, the general perception was that Rocky was kind of over and that this, I mean, from the outset, Rocky V feels like... It feels like it's on crutches. It's supposed to be a closing chapter, right? I think it's very much built that way in bringing the character back to its roots, bringing that original filmmaker to recapture part of the formula that made the original such a hit. And the first 20 minutes, I'm going to defend very strongly. It's about brain damage. It's about a guy who gets punched to no end for four movies and doctors saying, all right, you're done. Like, you're going to have degenerative brain disease for the rest of your life. You cannot do this, and you have to retire. And it's about this superhero character kind of having to get used to that. It's a very touching opening first act for Rocky V. The movie goes off the rails. I mean, a third act that doesn't work in any way, shape, and form. But for a good amount of that running time, it's working. It's a movie also about fatherhood. Stallone casts his own son, Sage Stallone, as... Rocky's son in the movie. There's a little bit of a sense that Stallone is trying to pack too much into this movie. It feels like there's three movies happening simultaneously. And of the three, the most interesting story is the one in the first half hour. I think this film wants to be so many different things and it doesn't really realize the potential of any of them. It does want to be a coda. You see at the end, there's a sort of, you know, the the tinkling music at the end as we go through some of our memories of Rocky's trajectory doesn't work because the film hasn't earned it. The closing fight scene with Tommy Morrison is abysmal, where Rocky suddenly now is one of the world's great street fighters and would have been one of the world's great UFC fighters. I think in the last fight, instead of going in a ring, like you mentioned, Bryn, it's a bar fight in an alleyway that, if I'm not mistaken, ends with Rocky delivering a perfect roundhouse kick to the face, the type of kick that Bruce Lee himself would be proud of. I had no idea this aging 55-year-old man could deliver just like a brutal martial arts kick like that, but it's part of the movie? Yeah, it's horrible. So I don't know. I mean, I just thought it's this pastiche of things that were kind of around at the time. Mickey actually haunts yeah, the movie. Yeah, there's, there's a ghost in Rocky Five. Hamlet? We went from having a robot in Rocky Four to a straight-up ghost in the fifth one. To straight-up ghost. So, I mean, I've always loved the constellation of characters, as we talked about before, that 
These are all misfits. They're all outcasts. They've all been written off. And yet the way that they support each other, the gestalt of that in the first film is magnificent. And then it kind of gets eroded away to this point where it becomes almost like a Saturday Night Live skit about this. Like it's so one note and so paper thin, um, all of the characters that Stallone is kind of just walking around in wardrobe in order that he can identify that it's Rocky. Like he loses all his money and he's brain damaged. And and then suddenly he's on the way up as a trainer. I mean, he's going to do the same thing in Creed, right? In, In a weird way. To that effect, I would I would offer the the notion that the the single most valuable thing about Rocky Five is that it's a rough draft. Absolutely, for Creed. yeah. It's 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 you know. the sort of movie that Creed knows how to avoid being right. It's a it's a great because story. Rocky Five. Yeah, is there. exactly. It's <laughs> you know everybody making Creed could be like, what if we do Rocky Five but good? Right, right. It's a great point. And it also sets up Rocky Balboa, the sixth installment in the series. You already know why Rocky retired. You already know he moved back to Philadelphia, that he lost all his money. Basically, like most, the overwhelming majority of boxers that hit it big, coming from abject poverty, hitting a rags to riches stories beyond anyone's wildest dreams, only, of course, for that money to be mismanaged and going back very nearly to that poverty that they began with. That is an arc that even this superhero fantasy of Rocky isn't immune to. So it it serves those purposes, right? It's a rough draft for Creed, and it puts the character in a position for the real closing chapter of the Rocky franchise that we have to wait for for 15 years. Yeah. Well, and there's kind of a reason for that. In the mid-aughts, you have a lot of stuff going on where people are trying to get both Rambo and Rocky back to the big screen. And there's a lot of business stuff behind the scenes that makes it really difficult for that to happen until 2005, 2006, both Rambo and Rocky are kind of pulled back up and Stallone gets a chance to revamp and relaunch kind of like doing his own remake. you know, <laughs> with both of those franchises and they come out within a couple of years of one another. And naturally Rocky Balboa is first out of the gate in 2006. And it's a movie that comes at a point in Stallone's career where it is in serious decline. It's already in post decline. That star persona where we can't really tell the difference between the Rocky we're seeing in the opening montage of Rocky three and actual Stallone, that line is blurred on purpose. By the time we get to Rocky Balboa, Stallone isn't a name that can command much of anything in Hollywood. And it's a situation where Stallone's career really needs to get back to the basics. And he gets that opportunity of rewriting a new ending to this character. I think he gets there with Rocky Balboa. I think it's a film that is a lot more introspective and retrospective in a way that a closing chapter to a franchise like this needs to be. It's a movie about aging in a way that the Creed movies continue being movies about aging, about getting older and understanding a role, especially within masculinity as you age. I really like how Rocky Balboa engages with those issues. It's a film that ultimately is able to capture, I think, a lot of goodwill from audiences. This is the first movie, actually, that I get to see in theaters. I was a huge fan of this franchise growing up. I'm super excited to see it in person. It delivered for me. Now, I know, Bryn, you're not a huge fan of this one at all. No, I despise it. I think it's by far the worst of all. I mean, even five, I think there's a charm 
to what Stallone is trying to do and failing miserably? Like, well, so, I mean, take the premise at the outset. Why, why is Rocky Balboa made? The idea is that we have an unpopular champion played by a real boxer, Antonio Tarver, real heavyweight champion. And this guy was really 175 pounds. So that right away looks a little weird. And he's unpopular and everybody's comparing him to the greatest boxer who's ever lived. Rocky had retired with brain damage with a record of 57 and 23. That just, there's no equivalent in the world of boxing. So it's a really weird place for Rocky to go. And again, it taps into this American thing. We're the greatest ever, but we're always the underdog. And let's not in any way acknowledge the cognitive dissonance of this. It's just there and, and leave it alone. So there's a sense of Rocky coming home in this, but the premise is ridiculous that Rocky is the greatest ever. And there's a computer simulation, which is just, again, like Stallone is doing with all this, stealing directly from the Muhammad Ali, Rocky Marciano, so-called like computer analysis of a round by round fight that they reenacted replete with Rocky Marciano wearing a wig and going on a crash This diet. actually oh. happened, by the way. This one was it in the, in the 1970s? No, this was during the Muhammad Ali not being able to fight era, I think, right? In the late 60s, if I'm not mistaken, where we had to come up with fake Muhammad Ali fights because there was no way you could get him back on the ring legally. That's right. And I think it was a pay-per-view to sort of watch them running around the ring, doing what the computer is telling them to do. I mean, it's insane. As a proposition, it is so ridiculous. And yet I think it was fairly successful monetarily. So this film, decades later, is stealing that premise, which is an abhorrent premise to begin with. And Tarver has no presence whatsoever as an actor. He was a really interesting boxer. He famously was the first person to knock out Roy Jones Jr. Let's talk about that because I do want to hit on the Tarver aspect. There's two aspects here to the boxing intertext in Rocky Balboa. One is having a 55-plus-year-old man coming back into the ring. There's a ver 60 at this point, right? There's an inspiration here, obviously, with the real-life George Foreman comeback where George Foreman is just this annihilator of men in the 1970s loses that mystique, getting famously knocked out by a past his prime Muhammad Ali, and then comes back decades later, like very much overweight, but also stronger than anyone had ever imagined, and ends up being this like Christian converted grill salesman slash old man heavyweight champion. There's a little bit of that inspiration in the Rocky Balboa comeback in that Rocky narrative. The antagonist here, though, is... I think, the worst antagonist in any Rocky movies because Antonio Tarver is very miscast. Not really a heavyweight fighter. At best, a light heavyweight at 175 pounds. Didn't really have too much of a personality outside of the ring like Tommy Morrison did. I think what might have happened here is in the years before Rocky Balboa coming out, Roy Jones Jr. is the most exciting fighter of the post-Tyson era. He's knocking people out. He has a great personality, but he gets outmatched and outshone, even in personality in the War of Words, by Antonio Tarver in a couple of fights years before Rocky Balboa goes into production. I'm assuming Stallone or someone in the production team saw what Tarver did in those two Roy Jones Jr. fights and said, oh, this guy's a great fit, but it doesn't work at all. The performance is flat. He looks way smaller than Stallone. And it, it really doesn't give us anyone to root against in a series 
that's very, very, very much built by letting you know who to root for and who to root against. Well, just very quickly, I think the reason he was cast is one thing Tarver did do in terms of his personality, which was extraordinary in the annals of boxing, is he utilized this pro forma beginning of every fight. The referee says, do you have any questions before they're sent back to their corner and they engage in a fight? In the second fight with Roy Jones, who for a long time was thought to be may possibly auditioning for being the greatest fighter who ever lived. And Tarver was the first person to beat him. And before their second fight, it had a very close first fight. In the rematch, as the referee said, do you have any questions? Tarver said, yeah, I do. What's your excuse going to be tonight, Roy? <laughs> the crowd erupted. That, that is the Hollywood moment. That is the moment where I think it, everyone it, it, realizes, it yeah, this guy is going to be a star. We got to get him in the Rocky movie. And he knocks him out. Exactly. And he knocks you out. But that Tarver never shows up in the movie. He's never given enough material for that personality to come out on in Rocky Balboa. And it also gave him an opportunity as an announcer, which he's still doing periodically. And he's never shown anything like the flair of that query. Now, maybe he planned it. Maybe told it, somebody told him to do it. But regardless it now becomes the most famous beginning moment just before the bell rings. And nobody had thought to utilize that. Every, nobody ever asks the question of the referee. I've ever heard in seeing 5,000 boxing matches. So Tarver definitely came up on your radar, both the query and an absolutely iconic knockout of this legendary fighter. So I'm sure that caught Stallone's attention. I think you're absolutely right in, in terms of saying George Foreman was 45 at the time that he became the oldest heavyweight champion ever and also was selling his grill, which I think he made something like nearly $200 million from. So he went from one of the most ferocious, scary people in American culture to one of the most beloved characters in American culture with a tremendous redemption story. So yeah, I think it's a juxtaposition of the two. It sounds like it would work on paper and it just unfortunately doesn't so much in the film. I still defend it. I mean, I can go into some of those reasons, but Russ, I want to hear from you. What was your take on a movie like Rocky Balboa when it came out in, in 2006? I mean, I come at it from a very different angle from you guys because I'm not a, a boxing fan. I don't watch boxing. I wasn't familiar with Tarver at all at the time. I think I can agree completely that the premise behind this movie is ridiculous at best. And I don't care. You know, it doesn't bother me. I think that Stallone creates enough of a emotional arc for Rocky that it does connect back to some of the power of the first movie. And that's what works for me. And that's what makes this feel like that's what makes this work as a solid coda to the character, you know, when we thought that this was going to be his, you know, his final run at it. In many ways, it's a quiet movie. And I do appreciate that Stallone went in that direction with the comfort, with the confidence of saying, maybe it can be a movie about loss. Maybe it can be a movie about trying to recapture something and failing to recapture it. I have a very different appreciation, I think, than Bryn does. But I do understand why the star text of Stallone gets in the way of this movie, uh, because it's hard to separate the two. And I think your relationship with Stallone as an actor maybe dictates your relationship with a movie like Rocky Balboa. For me, as a fan of the character, as a fan of the franchise, I needed a quiet, confident, introspective, retrospective, closing chapter that still worked within the formula for it to work 
I think we get that with Rocky Balboa, and I would have been happy if that was the end of the story. I think Stallone himself would have been happy if that was the end of the character. But an up-and-coming filmmaker named Ryan Coogler bursts onto the independent cinema scene with a film in the early 2010s called Fruitvale Station. And it's a movie that I remember watching, I believe I watched that at the New Directors New Films Festival here that the uh, Museum of Modern Art and the Film Society of Lincoln Center put on. I believe that's what I first saw it. And it was a film that was a little bit rough around the edges, but its star, Michael B. Jordan, had something to him. I hadn't seen him since that first season of The Wire, and to see him more grown up, to see that energy he brought onto the film... To see the filmmaking voice of this writer-director, Ryan Coogler, I got very, very excited about what this guy was going to do in the future, even if I didn't love Fruitvale Station. I like Fruitvale Station. Yeah, I mean, I saw it at Sundance, and I felt very much the same way, and it was one of those... It was a movie that made you think like, wow, if these guys don't get ground down by the machine that grinds most every new independent filmmaking voice, then they might be able to do something cool. And I don't know that I would have ever assumed like that was going to the arc was going to trace up to and through Black Panther because you can't predict that. But there was very clearly something going on with Coogler and Jordan and with their partnership. And so, you know, there was a lot of promise there. Absolutely. And we really didn't know where that was going to go. I think like you mentioned, Russ, we were interested in seeing what are these guys going to do together? So when the studio picture that Coogler decides to pitch, basically when he gets to a round of meetings after Fruitvale Station becomes a hit and he says, I want to bring back the Rocky franchise, but have Rocky be a supporting character. I don't think anybody was ready for that. Ryan Coogler is a filmmaker who was very influenced by the Rocky movies. He grew up watching them with his father. It's one of the big reasons for him to be a filmmaker. He said this in multiple interviews. He had a story for this movie, the spinoff based on the unrecognized child of Apollo Creed. Uh, He had this story ready and set up to go. He had to talk Stallone into giving him permission to do it. Stallone turns this down on several occasions, apparently, until finally acquiescing. And I think the final result is, in my opinion, the best of the sequels. The first Creed, I think, is the second best movie in, out of all of these, reteaming him with uh, Michael B. Jordan, who ends up being a star in his own right, not only through this film, but their future collaboration, as you mentioned, Russ, when they reteam for Black Panther, the original. Released in 2015 by Warner Brothers, who had the rights at this point. I loved it. Bryn, where were you at this point in your relation to this series as a whole, coming out of Rocky Balboa nearly 10 years ago that you didn't like? I thought it was just retreading the original sauce of Rocky 1. But I thought, there's nothing wrong with that. I didn't hear it called out that much. But it just seemed like let's it, it worked the first time. Let's do it again and put a, a new guy in. It's interesting to have Michael B. Jordan. I think does is, is spectacular casting. I like everybody who surrounds him. Tony Bilyeu is fabulous casting, and th- that is the antagonist in this movie. Actually, this movie casts three well-known boxers: Gabe Rosado in the first third of the film, Andre Ward, one of the biggest boxers of the era. 
in a strangely supporting role. I think there was a little bit more for Andre Ward to do. He comes back in the sequel. And Tony Bellew, who actually does show up in Creed 3 in the opening scene. Tony Bellew is the main antagonist in this movie. And I, I agree with you. He delivers in a way that I don't think he ever delivered in the ring for me. Yeah, I mean, he had he had a very interesting career. It was lucrative in a lot of ways. I mean, he generated a lot of fan support. He has his own kind of charisma that is distinctive. And I like him as a screen presence a lot. But I also think that this, as you were mentioning in terms of being the best Rocky sequel, it positions Rocky in the right way, that he needs to be supportive at this point. We need a little less of him. I think he's done enough in terms of how much Stallone had for Rocky to say about anything. We need to go back to something quiet and have him be a little bit more ambient. And there's something here about having Rocky working in his little restaurant. It's like what Stallone wanted Rocky V to be and wanted Rocky Balboa to be. To me here, there's not a false note. So to see Rocky have to connect with this guy based on the previous relationship he had with Apollo and all Apollo did for him, I love the way that that is maneuvered. It just allows Stallone to shine in his subtlety, being nuanced, which is not where Stallone goes except by instinct. I think that there's a point to be made that not having to direct the movie gives Stallone room to sit back and maybe, you know, it's as impressed as I am that the main Rocky movies are primarily the product of Stallone as a writer and director. There is a backside to that, which is that I don't think Stallone is a very nuanced director. And I think that his own insecurities as an actor, compound his limitations as a director. So when you have him directing himself, those things really, it's just easier for him to go big and maudlin and obvious instead of small and maudlin and subtle. And, you know, those are Rocky's best moments, the small moments in any of the Rocky movies. The best moments are his small moments. And Creed has a lot of them. And yeah, it's formula. It, it is literally a remake of the, fir- of the original Rocky. But like you guys say, the characters work. Jordan is great. It's photographed beautifully. It really looks spectacular in a lot of ways, in a way that also isn't like overblown, but that really captures what's going on with the characters. And I think that it works in every way that it needs to work. And the confidence that Stallone has in letting go of something he's been so possessive about. And we've heard it a lot during the press run of Creed 3, Stallone not being involved, not being asked to come back and being very hurt by it. Imagine that risk that he takes personally to let someone, a new filmmaker like Ryan Coogler, come in and say, hey, let me take this to another level. Let me tell a different story. And I want you to be a supporting Part of it. And it works perfectly, I think, for those reasons. It's a movie that also brings in a different audience. This film is able to bring in an African-American perspective and African-American culture, a contemporary Black culture in the film through not only Kugler, but also Michael B. Jordan's performance. Tessa Thompson here is fantastic. She is just, toe, she goes toe-to-toe with Talia Shire to bring in a boxing expression and performs remarkably well the soundtrack here works really, really well in a way that that Stallone tried to make the Rocky Balboa soundtrack work on a more contemporary level and doesn't. The song Lord Knows from Meek Mill ends up being a really, really good pop equivalent song for this movie and the way that the Rocky series 
didn't have that in Rocky V, didn't have that in Rocky Balboa. So yeah, I think in every level that a Rocky movie is supposed to work, it has to harken back to the formula. It has to have your strong female character that's independent, that's engaging, that can make this a date movie. It has to bring in your formulaic moments of male insecurity, of identity, of father-son tensions. It gets all of that. It gets all of that plus a contemporary appeal for younger audiences. Ryan Coogler hits this out of the park, a fantastic movie. I'm excited to what comes next, but then something happens in Ryan Coogler's career. And that is Ava DuVernay drops out of Black Panther due to creative differences. There's some tension there with Disney. Ava DuVernay, who is on the rise as a filmmaker, very publicly walks away from this project. A lot of question marks over what's going to happen with Disney's Marvel's production of Black Panther start coming up, and Ryan Coogler decides to take on that project. As a result, having to step away from the direction of Creed II. So Coogler is still there as a producer. He brings up another African-American director, young director, Stephen Capel Jr., to come in and take the reins of that story, a story that takes a lot of its inspiration from Rocky IV. Creed II is a sequel in many ways to Rocky IV, and a sequel that I think works in, in many, many dimensions. It's a movie where the uh, son of Ivan Drago, the antagonist, played by Dolph Lundgren in Rocky IV, comes back and is seeking to have a revenge boxing match with the son of the deceased Apollo Creed, who was killed in Rocky IV by uh, Ivan Drago. Spoiler, sorry, get over it. I thought what it was missing is, we didn't talk about it in the first Creed, is that Rocky also gets cancer and is unwilling to confront treatment, which is a very common thing with a lot of men. Men don't get medical checkups. We're very resistant to it, too proud, too afraid, or whatever, the frailty and, and that stuff with aging and the medical system is a the stereotype is true about men with that. And Rocky's no different because we also haven't talked that Adrian's dead. Adrian died of ovarian cancer and Rocky feels guilty about it. And he's holding on to the past. He's got one foot in the grave. And he wants to die. In many ways, a character, as we find him in Creed, even in Rocky Balboa, is a character that is not only accepted death, but waiting for it. Welcome for it to come. Because he doesn't know who he is, which is a very true thing for a lot of boxers is I've been this my whole life. Now I'm 30, 35, you know, even 25 in some cases. Who am I without this? A lot of boxers tremendously struggle with it. CTE we're learning more and more, even from a couple of concussions, can afflict a huge number of people in boxing. Rocky has been diagnosed with brain damage and then miraculously has a fight afterwards and nobody seems that concerned, let alone the medical system. Okay. But what I liked about the first one that I don't feel as much in the second is I believe that you have Michael B. Jordan convincing Rocky to stay alive, that he has something new in this new stage of his life, not being the center of attention. And as he's getting chemo and you see him cheering on the person he's mentoring, that relationship is moving. It could have gone the other way in the hands of another filmmaker. It's an eye roll prospect, right? Rocky fights cancer in Creed. That's who Rocky fights. He's fought everyone. He's now going to have to beat cancer. And it's actually part of the training montage in Creed. The final training montage is Michael B. Jordan's Adonis Creed training for a boxing fight as Rocky Balboa is going through chemotherapy. And as you mentioned, it's incredibly moving in a way that it could have gone really, really wrong. And it's moving, you know, we've been knocking Stallone, especially I have a fair bit, but a huge part of it is his delivery of the best scene in the whole film, 
which is Rocky talking about that his entire life is all points to the posters that are behind him, the boxing posters. It's in the past. He's lost his wife. He's lost everything he earned from boxing. What does he have to live for today, let alone tomorrow? And Michael B. Jordan provides it, again, overcomes this obstacle in a way that we are all in, in support of. In the next film, while I love seeing Dolph Lundgren come back and he has his son and they really lean into the fighting because Creed 1, we didn't talk so much about. The boxing community generally hates boxing films because the separation between what you're seeing in a boxing film and what boxing really is, is so enormous compared to, I think, other sports films. And boxing is the most utilized sport in the history of cinema. So we've seen a lot of it and it looks awful awful. And most people can't tell the difference. So that's another issue about it that I think bothers people in boxing is nobody can fight like Rocky, let alone an entire career. There are no fights like Rocky. Like there's been like three in the, in like the last hundred years. And Stallone presents it as if it's the rule rather than not just the exception, but I mean the one in a billion kind of thing. So I feel like one issue I have with Kugler is to create the verisimilitude of boxing that he achieved, which is really something to single out and give him praise for, it's hard not to be tempted to focus on that rather than story. I feel that that detracts to the, from the storytelling for me, especially in the second one, because he wants the fighting to look so amazing. And it does look amazing, and it's risky to do that, but I'm not as invested in the characters because I don't feel the stakes are there for the Stallone-Michael B. Jordan relationship. And in the first one, I did feel it. In the second film, it's compelling, but it feels more like a TV movie to me. In sort of, It seems a little thinner, a little more superficial. And to, over, and to compensate for that, the fighting is more spectacular. It's more fast-paced and sort of video gamey in a way that it just loses the innocence of what Rocky was of the characters and their relationships and the storytelling. I can understand that. And it's interesting. I, I spoke with Stephen Capel Jr. At, at length before this movie got released. I see he was putting the final touches editing it. And that is a, a big focus that he had in the production process, his approach to the fight scenes. And I think in a way, and I hate to say this because I, I didn't tell it to him directly when we spoke because I hadn't seen the film yet. You're right. It detracts from the film. The film could have benefited from more dramatic moments and exploring a buried trauma from the past in the Drago, Creed, Rocky relationship. Instead, it gets a little bit distracted by focusing on interesting boxing scenes. And essentially, that's not what we're here for. But you're right in that, Bryn, in that it's okay for the boxing to not be a focus, to not be the say-all and all of the film if you have an emotional core in it. There is an emotional core in Creed 2. I'm not sure it's fully realized. I'm not sure there's enough time given to the characters to get there, even though I still think it's a pretty good sequel and better than what we could have gotten. I mean, audiences in general right now are unusually attracted to realism, but it's realism in air quotes, really. You know, it's the fiction of realism. And I think that's something that Creed II really plays into in its presentation of the fights, where it's like, we're supposed to feel like it's real. And, and it's like, almost slavishly dedicated to that idea as is the case with a lot of other stuff that we that we see in movies and 
where that dedication to a fantasy perceptual reality ultimately detracts from the artistic presentation because it's just the two things don't live together. I was just going to say also is I think there's a tendency for people within boxing and some people outside to, to impose on it is to speed everything up to the rate at which they're, they're fighting. And where you see with Scorsese's choices to slow everything down, as with Stallone, Stallone slows life down. And like, think of that great scene in Raging Bull. I think the, the best musical sequence is that Cavaliera Rusticana, the intermezzo with his version of the montage, which is so poetic, weaving the life and the violence and marriage and, and all of that. The Creed films are moving more into the hip hop, moving, speeding stuff up the quick cuts and that sort of thing. And again, I think it holds appeal for a general audience that's been conditioned to that kind of, I need to constantly have my dopamine just being hit all the time. But I feel like Michael B. Jordan is, is moving more in that direction too. He's becoming more like I am auditioning to get on the cover of men's health magazine, as opposed to, I want to sell this character. So he's going to become indelible like Rocky was. There's that parallel between Michael B. Jordan, the star, and Creed, the character, and Stallone, star, and Creed character, that I think, to be perfectly honest, with Michael B. Jordan directing Creed three, that being his directorial debut, is explicit in the third film. Everything we're talking about right now, uh, about Creed two, whether we like it or we don't, is further exemplified, actually, in Creed three, which is opening up this weekend, all of these aspects are doubled down upon by Michael B. Jordan's directorial decisions in the third installment. I think that's a very astute observation, Bryn, because that definitely does seem to be where this franchise is going. Another famous thing about Creed Three that I think it does handle quite well as audiences begin to, to see the film and discover it is that Rocky isn't part of it by design would have felt like you're imposing his presence in the film. At a certain point in these Creed movies, you get this sense that you have to leave that Rocky father character behind, that you have to tell a different story. What Michael B. Jordan accomplishes in Creed Three is that exactly. He's able to move on from the shadow of the Rocky movies and create something in his own image. But that own image looks a lot like 1983 Sylvester Stallone. So it'll be very interesting to see where the future sequels go, because it's a very much a take two of that star text, but with a different generation, a different actor director, and the original creator of the series in the background now decrying his lack of involvement. Part of the success, I think, of Creed 3, as it stands on its own without that shadow of Rocky, is that it's able to use the formula and expand on it a little bit innovate enough a little bit. It's able to bring in an actor like Jonathan Majors as an antagonist, and he steals the film. Creed Three, in many ways, is the antagonist film in the way that Rocky One and Rocky Two is the antagonist film through the Apollo Creed character. Jonathan Majors is amazing in this role in a way that connects you to those early Rocky sequels of having to have that opponent that can take over a scene. And at the end of the day, I think when we look back on a movie like Creed 3, Jonathan Majors is going to be the first thing you think about the same way that when you think of Rocky 3, you think Mr. T. When you think Rocky 4, you think Dolph Lundgren. It has that. It's able to recapture that magic. But can it sustain it? I think that's a tall, tall ask as the franchise continues. And that wraps up this week's edition, very long edition, of the Box Office Podcast. Thank you to Russ Fisher and Bryn Jonathan Butler for joining us. And thank you to our sponsors over at Jackrow 
for sponsoring this episode. Once again, we'll talk to you again next week.